You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, TFM's local watering hole, and I am just excited to be with you coming at you from, well, uh, somewhere unexpected. Uh, we've got a, a tiny little bar here on Ferrix, and well, the gong has just been rung. It is We are off work. Uh, everybody, I hope, is enjoying a good beverage. And with me, as she is every single week, the one and only Christy Morris. And this week negotiating aggressively oh oh <laughs> no oh my goodness oh john she's Excellent. stepping on our territory buddy. <laughs> and as everybody can tell the 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 jedi master closest to my heart john war were declared let's get to it yes <laughs> all right <laughs> This is going to be fantastic. Uh, we're going to be talking about the first season of Andor. There are only two seasons of this show coming, although the second season uh, will not be with us and probably till 2024, if I remember correctly, because uh, they don't even finish se- shooting season two until August of 2023. So they are putting a lot of work into this show. But before we dive into everything, welcome to the 602 Club. We're so excited to be here. It's been a banner year here in 2022. We only have a few more episodes after this left for the year, so I hope you've enjoyed it. Man, we would love it if you would hit us up on social media and let us know what your favorite shows were this year. Just interact with Christy and I over at The 602 Club on Twitter, and we're on Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us, uh, and again, just interact with us. We love just being able to talk with fans about what we're talking about on the show, or maybe even what you're interested in us covering in 2023. We're almost there, folks. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash FM. There is a listeners-only discussion group you can join on Facebook. You can talk to listeners from all over the world about our shows here on TFM. Go to facebook.com, just type in Babel into the search field, and you will find uh, our listeners-only discussion group there. Uh, you can also uh, find us online at trek.fm. There's a place where you can send us contact, uh, like uh, email-wise. Not a lot of people email, but we, you know, Christy, we got an actual email uh, about a really old episode hmm. that we did on the original Battlestar Galactica. This was from Joy. They were talking about just how much they love the old BSG and how much they still love the show. Uh, you know, got to love somebody going all the way back. I mean, that's like episode 16 or something of wow. this show. Uh, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, just as reference for everybody, this is the official 408th episode of the show. So they got way back, which is awesome. So thank you for doing that. Uh, you can also help us out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get the episodes as soon as they drop. We really appreciate everybody who does that and listens every week. And, you know, it's the holiday season and whoop de doo and dickery doc. And please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and we'll fill up your 
anyway, I don't know what I'm going with that. But uh, stockings we would cheer. really like it. Exactly. We would love it, though, if you did that. And well, hey, if you give us a you know review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it out there in the show. Last but not least, the, sh- the network itself uh, could definitely use your help over at patreon.com slash trekfm. Christy and I have actually been uh, talking uh, behind the scenes here, behind the bar uh, at the 602 Club about some special things they're going to be doing for uh, just Patreon members alone. Uh, we've planned at least four episodes during the year that will be only and exclusively to them. And in fact, that starts here at the end of the year. Uh, we're going to be doing that. Uh, and I think, uh, Christy, we talked about doing our end-of-year review about our favorite things from 2022, not mm-hmm. just movies and television shows, but maybe other things as well. Uh, and it's going to be really loose and fun and very different than our normal episodes. So we hope that you'll join Patreon, help the network, and be able to get episodes just like that. So we are here. We are at Andor. And, oh my goodness, um, you know, we had a lot of Star Wars television this year. We had Book of Boba Fett, we had Kenobi, we've had Tales of the Jedi, and now finally we're at Andor. And so, before we get into anything else, I'm just kind of wondering how you guys were even feeling coming into this show. John, I'll start with you because, you know... Obviously, if anybody listens to us, they know we have a contentious relationship over Rogue One. And, um, you know, so were you excited about the show coming in? Was it something that was kind of on your radar? Or how how were you feeling coming into it? Was, I was interested. I mean, it, like, you're making me sound heartless here. Just because I don't think that <laughs> Rogue One is, is wholly writ delivered unto us from the heavens does not mean I don't enjoy it. <laughs> uh, and Andor was, look, I'll, I'll be completely frank and this might make me an outcast in some circles but yeah andor was one of the more interesting characters from rogue one so knowing that a series was coming uh yeah okay you have my interest i will pay attention to this i'm i'm intrigued and knowing that gilroy was working on it i was like well that makes a whole ton of sense he created the character why wouldn't he tell his origin story that makes sense to me and so i was you know was i excited i mean I, that's hard. Like, no. Uh, what, what's your metric for excited? Tales of the Jedi, I'm excited. Ahsoka, I'm excited. Mandalorian Season 3, I'm excited. Andor, I'm not that level of excited, but I'm very interested and I'm going to make a point to watch it. So, like, you know, I'm not a kid on Christmas morning, but I'm not apathetic about it. You know, I'm, I th- I'd say I'm reasonable excited coming into the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it I think that's your curiosity. Sense, exactly. Great way to put it, Christy. Okay. Nice. I was thinking so that's it where had you were going your attention, but now it has your curiosity. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about you, Christy? I, I was sort of similar to John. I um really enjoyed Rogue One. It's not my favorite Star Wars movie ever, but still enjoyed it and um was curious to see what they would have the show doing um how a prequel to that would look um and if they would bring in all of the main characters that we knew or you know just a couple of them um from the movie i really was curious more than anything um and definitely liked diego luna actually before rogue one so him in anything is usually a good casting decision anyway yeah yeah, I mean, point. it it's um 
I Rogue One's like my third favorite Star Wars film. Uh, and so for me, I, I think I was probably more excited than both of you coming into this. And uh, which means, in all honesty, too, you know, it had a lot more to live up to uh, in that sense, I think, you know, um, the way that I feel like Kenobi did for me. And, you know, we've got that show and everybody can go listen to that and hear those thoughts. Um, but I, I think, you know, to me, in all honesty, the thing that just really piqued my interest and really grabbed my curiosity was when the trailer came out and this show just looked very different from all of the other shows that we've gotten for star wars through disney plus which were all created on the volume and then and so i think to me coming in especially after seeing the trailer that they dropped and i believe that was at celebration or maybe a little bit before that, or I, I can't remember it. You know, the year goes by too fast. Uh, but that was the thing that was like, okay, this show looks to be making a statement that's very different than anything else we've got. And so I think that only kind of raised the bar for me in the sense of where I was excitement level after that. Um, and because in many ways, it was... It was different you know it was it was it it just felt different it looked different and in many ways i just feel like it was mirroring so much of what rogue one had been for me so personally just coming in i I was pretty excited uh about the show uh in all honesty about the same level of excitement that i felt uh you know for you know i guess even the mandalorian when it first came out because it, that was another thing. We didn't really know anything, you know. You, you're just kind of mm-hmm. coming in, um, in, in some ways, almost blind. Uh, so, um, but this is a 12-episode series that's basically broken down into different arcs. And to try and make this manageable for us to talk about, I figured the best way to do it would be to talk about characters And then in that, we're going to be able to touch on a lot of different parts uh, that those characters kind of give us, you know, with with other characters, because this is a massive show um, in the sense that there are a lot of different characters. uh, There's a lot going on. And and Christy, uh, uh, you know, and and I, John, I don't I think you've only seen maybe one episode, but in some ways with all of that, this show kind of mirrors Game of Thrones in that sense, where there's a lot going on, there's a lot of characters, and there's mm-hmm. a lot to catch you up with. And in some ways, I feel like that's where this show's first departure from all the other shows came, which was, this feels much more like all of the prestige television shows that have been coming out over the last like 10 years in the way it's set up, the amount of characters, the way it's paced, all of that kind of stuff, even the way it looks and feels when it comes to its, you know, uh, production value, all of that was really fitting into that, which is, is is something that I was not necessarily expecting until the preview came out, uh, especially with the other shows that we've been getting. And I'm not trashing the other shows. I'm not trashing Mandalorian or any of those things. I'm just saying mm-hmm. this is definitely... It it was immediately, I think, in a different category, even after those first three episodes. Yeah, I would say I see that comparison for sure. Um, when you compare like the most recent season of um, Book of Boba Fett, it did feel like a much smaller world in general. 
um, even though it's not just the way that the sets were done um, and the number of characters and the interweaving of stories together, I do think that this one feels more grandiose. I, I, I saw, just to your point, Matt, it was a season of Game of Thrones, and I that's when I tapped out. Everybody keeps saying I should watch more of it, but whatever. I, you know, yeah, I'll you don't have it. to. I'll add it to the list. <laughs> whatever. But to speak to your point about uh, grandiosity, Christy, I think, Matt, what, what you're getting at there, and I think w- the word grandiose is right, Christy, is that, um, and this is what speaks to the heart of it as a Star Wars sort of thing, as you, you saw, especially with Lucas's work, um, a desire to have multiple storylines firing at the same time that were related without being interwoven necessarily. Mon Mothma's story doesn't necessarily have to do with Andor, but they are interwoven even though they don't know who the other person is. It's, it, has, it has sort mm-hmm. of a, an American graffiti vibe in that sense. And for that reason, yes, there is the grandiosity there. There is the uh, ambition. I think that's, that's really the sort of thing is when you look at this show in specific – you see an ambition to make it that very complex story. Whereas with the Mandalorian, which I adore, the Mandalorian stays tightly focused because it's about the Mandalorian. It's right there. Mm-hmm. In the, now this is about Andor, but implicit in Andor's story is they know that the audience is coming in with an expectation of, okay, you're getting us from point A to point B because we're here because we want to find out how we got to Rogue One because we didn't see that journey. Andor is introduced to us in that movie very quickly. Give us the, the prologue that you would have wanted referenced in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in story or something like that. So yeah, I, I, I do definitely see what you're both saying there where there's an ambition. Matt, to get to your point about production, I think that there's a depth of field that's possible filming on location that is so very difficult to capture, whether it's on the volume or on green screen or anything like that. They've gotten so much better it's gotten fantastic. There's stuff in the in the Mandalorian that is that is wonderful. Book of Boba Fett mm-hmm. shows its limitations. Whereas with this, when you're shooting in the real world, there is a depth of field that is it, it, it it's one of those things where you just you can't describe it, but your eye knows it. And that's yeah. what I think mm-hmm. really gives it um a lot of weight is because what what uh Frazier did with Rogue One, this show feels like it belongs to that visual language. Right. So, yeah. And that speaks again to what you're talking about, Chrissy, mm-hmm. with the grandiosity of everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really important, too. I mean, you know, uh, Rogue One definitely had a very specific feel to it where, in a lot of ways, it felt like those Umbara Clone Wars arcs, you know, where it's real gritty and, and feels very right. real and visceral. You know, um, which is one of the things I think this show uh, and we'll talk about in a little bit where, you know, it it uses different genres 
of of storytelling to tell its story. But I think that really comes out though too in just the production of the show as well. Uh, well, I I also want to want to throw this out there. It's my first caustic lob, my first little lob there onto the field. Christy, you said you wanted aggressive negotiations here. Mm-hmm. I think that. Tony Gilroy writing, creating, executive producing this show. I think that this is the definitive statement that Rogue One is really Tony Gilroy's film. That Gareth Edwards gave us our first draft, but the simple fact that I look at this show, which is shepherded by Gilroy, and I, to what you said, what you both said, this feels like Rogue One. It feels like Rogue One in a way that this is not a director honoring a work or a creator, I should say, a producer honoring a work. This is a producer mimicking his own work. So yeah, that's my first little cost. Yeah. It, it, yeah. In a way, it diminishes Gareth Edwards in a way I'm not comfortable with when I think about it philosophically. But um, I think it definitely declares Rogue One as Tony Gilroy's film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you've got a great point there, and 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 I can't, I honestly can't say anything to that. And part of that is, you know, there's so much we don't know about the production of Rogue One that's never going to be told. And you know, but I think that you picking up that piece is is obvious, really, because this does feel so much like what they created there, and this really does just feels like a continuation of that. And part of that. You know, we've been talking about it a little bit, and I, I think before we dive into the characters, this might be a good time just to talk about the production because it is so different. And in all honesty, you know, Christy, we were talking about the idea of of prestige television, Game of Thrones. You know, you have these type of shows like that, or you know, I think even all the way back to like when HBO did uh, Band of Brothers, and where the production value is just so high. And it feels as though you're making a film level show every single week. That's what this felt like. It felt like watching a piece of of like a part of Rogue One that we just hadn't seen every single week. And in all honesty, I think this is always what I think Star Wars television in my head was going to be like. Yeah, I think this was even mm. what George Lucas was trying to get at when he was trying to do his uh, underworld television show. And it's why he never did it, because he could never get it to the level where it looked like he would put it on the big screen. Mm. And this is the show, to me, that, I mean, I wish Kenobi had been, um, you know, and I hope that every other show that they do really picks this up um this idea up because you know john you know they even shot on location for mandalorian they're not always on the volume true they, you know, they yeah. created Absolutely. pieces of those you know like outdoor sets and stuff uh and you know even think of the end of the season when there's that big outdoor set of the town they created you know so th- this is this is a, but I, I think this is where you can use all of the pieces of technology and film craft from old to new to make something work, but this, I think, just truly uh, stood out in a way that I I was just blown away by. Every, I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of the show, Bruce Gibson, and, and he was just like, 
I I don't ever feel like it's not real, mm-hmm. you know. And right. and I I think, and in all honesty, there may be like maybe two or three shots in the whole series, season one, where I could say like, oh yeah, I can really tell that that's definitely just all CGI or whatever. Otherwise, everything here just looks phenomenal. Yeah, I I mean, it strikes that balance. It definitely strikes that balance. And and again, I I do want to you know, touch on, on what you were saying where it's like the Mandalorian doesn't look bad by any stretch. No, but no. There, there, there are limitations that, that even, even going to your example of the Mandalorian, the times that they're shooting on location versus when they're shooting on the volume, especially outdoor scenes, that's where you can draw a distinction as to the depth of field sort of thing that I'm getting at there. But um, I think that... I think that in all honesty, what it is, is simply the fact that you're dealing with, um, uh, and I know that I'm going to lack the, the technical terms, and I'm going to describe it in a clumsy way that people who are more familiar with the technology are going to be very angry at me, but there's a richness to the, the shots in terms of the color palette that is smartly, it, it's very smartly chosen. This color palette is really expertly chosen f- to work and to evoke a feeling. Whereas if I were to point at a, a, a shortcoming of other Star Wars shows that have, have been released up to this point is that they tend to be a little washed out. And part of that is the location. Part of that is using the volume. Part of that is obviously creative decision. But there is a, a richness to the color that makes things very vibrant here that is, um, you know, it, it's, it's undeniable. And I think that's the DNA of Rogue One that, that carries through the most strongly. I think that's a great point. I think that is the 100% the thing that I notice when I think of why it feels gritty and um, I don't necessarily want to say dark but you know a a darker version of the usual star wars we would see you know versus a new hope for example um and i think that although i don't know the technical terms for it either that that's a, a good description um and i would agree with that um as far as the production overall to me as well i really noticed that especially with the scenes for Aldani um with the hills um and you know them showing the eye um even though obviously that's different um that's not shot on location um (laughs) (laughs) if only it were felt like it 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 was like uh you know (laughs) but i think that's the thing is it did feel real like it it felt like the celestial event of your life right so yeah, I mean, I think those scenes in particular are what I think of with this show. And I think that was larger than life production value. That was way bigger than I felt that we got with Kenobi or with Mandalorian or with Book of Boba Fett. And like mm-hmm. you said, Matt, honestly, what I would have expected coming from films to Star Wars television. Um, go ahead. No, I, I, I to support your point. I completely agree with you in terms of the expectation of the look, right? Is Mm -hmm. it's not about Lucasfilm. It's about the fact that Disney buying Lucasfilm was supposed to be, hey, 
you know, Uncle Walt's company bought you and they they can just throw money at everything. They they can waste half a billion dollars making jungle cruise if they want to. Ha ha ha, you know, that's all that sort of thing. And yes, that that vibe you get in terms of the production quality here makes you ask look i know there were there were limitations because of covid and stuff like that but this really highlights the shortcomings of something like what happened with book of boba fett where you look at it and you say even before this you were you were saying what yeah this doesn't feel quite right this doesn't look quite right and then you look at this and you say yeah this is this is the type of this looks like somebody drove a dump truck full of money up to the set and was like whatever you need to spend spend it whereas you look mm-hmm. at book of boba fett and you say somebody drove up to the set with like you know their wallet and they were like yeah i got some big bills here you know make a mm-hmm. chase through town here you know make that happen you know right yeah definitely not the the depth that you were talking about as well of just the, the depth of field in the scenes the um i don't know just the amount of stuff that they were include able to include. Yeah. Percy, you mentioned something uh, because you mentioned a new hope. And one of the things that George Lucas was very keen to do with star Wars, which was, it was going to be different than like 2001 or star Trek because it was going to be a lived in universe. And I think that's the thing by creating everything for real as much as possible and shooting on location, it feels like a lived in universe. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. specifically of the design of Ferrix and everything that that tells you about its culture and its people, every single thing is chosen specifically for that town for a reason to build into who these people are, what these people believe in, what their culture is like. And all of that is done because specifically, you know, by the production, Ferrix is a stand-in for the rest of the galaxy. This is a micro version of what's happening macro across the galaxy as the suffocation of the Empire destroys people's ways of life. And what helps and why we're seeing this zeal for a rebellion rising, not just on Ferrix, but in other parts of the galaxy because we hear the Imperials talking about it. This is one of the ways in which the production value being so good actually has a major impact on the story because that also goes into the fact that I spend so much time at Ferrix and with these people um, that every moment that's spent there is actually building into my feeling towards this place so that when I get to the end... I feel something for what happens in that final episode. Um, And so, again, this is the way in which production, and when we say production, you know, we're talking about the production value and all those things actually really, truly matter to a well-told story. And it speaks to the visual language that Lucas would have been very uh, keen toward using, Mm -hmm. where... You have a situation where you look at Ferrix and you see that that gritty, lived-in, dreary, looks like you know rainy London, ten months of the year sort of thing. There's a and but people are happy enough to just keep surviving, sort of thing. Juxtaposed with that sterile, awful, soulless look 
of ISB, which mm-hmm. even yeah, looks excessively yep. sterile. Even it, even though you go in other parts of Coruscant where it's like it's less sterile and it's a little more, you know, there's less shine to it. But you go into that ISB thing and you're like, this place is creepy. It's like a, it's like an operating room for how to dissect the galaxy, sort of thing. And <laughs> I think that there's a um, a beautiful visual language with that because you also get that sense of the opulence with Mon Mothma. Where she's right. rebellious, but she's part of this opulent life that exists. And so there's a very clear visual language between the worlds. Just like Chrissy, you, you referenced you know, the original Star Wars. You see this very stark contrast between Luke, the earth tones, the very gritty, sandy, dusty thing going on. And then you go to the Empire and it's polished floors and straight mm-hmm. angles and stark lighting and all of these. Although the, Lucas didn't really care for the lighting that Gil Taylor did, but whatever, you know, it carried through. But like there's a very real feeling of of difference in, in, in the visual language that supports what the characters, their arcs and what happens with that, what where, what journeys they go on. And I want to add to that and say, I do feel that this is saying all of those things, especially since there are things later with the production value changing with the arc that feel like they are honoring Lucas and his intentions by mirroring other things that he's done outside of Star Wars, like THX 1138. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm going oh with absolutely. all of the prison scenes. Oh, the prison scenes. Wonderful pull. Absolutely. The very first thought in my head was, this is THX. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Christy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and you were talking about John, too. Like, Christy, I love you bring that up because it's 100% something that I noticed uh, about the show. Because that's also what you feel like in parts of Coruscant, where Cyril lives and his mother lives, right? It's that yeah. that really sterile... THX one one three eight type of environment, you know, um, and it's it's not the and again, like you were saying, John, it it's juxtaposed against the opulence you see for somebody like Mon Mothma, who we know what she's doing internally and you know uh, under the radar of the Empire, at least she's trying to stay under the radar, but she has to put on this face, you know, and her husband is a perfect example of somebody who's just like really living it up and enjoying, you know, the opulence. But all of that goes into the production value. And then, I mean, you know, the the other thing I love about the production here too is that we have great design work in the sense of I love B, the droid. Such a cool, fun, new droid design. Yeah. Great voice uh, work by Dave Chapman. Um, and then you've got something like the Fondor, which is Luthen's ship. And dude, Ugh. that might be one of my favorite ships in the entire series. It's so awesome. And ship design is so key to making Star Wars yes! work. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's not just something I saw before with a racing stripe. This is a badass <laughs> design with cool things that I like. I want this. I want the toy. I want it so bad. It's so key to make a ship that I want. I want that ship. Badly, very badly. Sorry, I know. Tangent went down the rabbit hole there. I have an unhealthy obsession with the design of that ship, both interior and exterior. Oh my gosh. 
what a ridiculously cool ship that is. Sorry. So, and no, I was going to say, I think it's because it feels like a combination of several Star Wars ships into one. I got Razorcrest vibes. I got Millennium Falcon vibes with the turret. Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. There's definitely some combinations in there that I think were intentional. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And and that's key too. It's like when you see the Jedi Starfighter in episode three, like you see that sense of like a mass production galaxy. There are gonna be certain things like mm-hmm. a cockpit window where it's like once somebody solves that problem, they're like, Yeah, it's gonna kinda look the same from ship to ship. But then right. other things are going to be very different. And even the uh you know, the 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 the, the Imperial cruiser that they use, seeing it rendered there. You know, the way that they rendered it and the way they lit it is really, really key to the visual language of Star Wars. Those three big dishes had a very Colin Cantwell feel when they rendered it out there Mm -hmm. for, you know, Mm -hmm. our live action Star Wars sort of thing, which is great because that Colin Cantwell echo, you know, it's just like using some of Joe Johnston's original stuff for episode three or episode two. Where it's like, that's why it feels still Star Wars is because they use the concepts that that were done in the development stages sort of thing. But yeah, sorry, Luthien's ship is just, I want the <laughs> Lego set, I want the toy, I want a poster of it. I want, like, I haven't been this nuts about a ship since the Ghost probably. And it's like, I love this thing so much, sorry. And I, there's one other thing I want to add about the ship, because I'm with you on that. I totally feel the same. I like that, honestly, um, with his little drop-down container of disguise pieces, I was kind of getting Fifth Element vibes. Wonderful nice pull. Call. I was thinking Wonderful about where pull. I had seen that before, and everything yeah. in um, Corbin Dallas's room is like hidden compartments like that. So, yeah. Oh, what a great pull. Yes, Christy, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Oh. Well, and, and 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 even in the production yeah. here, like they pull from different things, especially with Luthen. Uh, they pull from uh, the crystal that he has is from Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, they also reference uh, some of the uh, alien species from Knights of the Old Republic. Hmm. Um, you know, and, which is awesome. Uh, you know, so just little things like that. You know, this show is not concerned in the sense of like connecting to everything in the larger star wars universe but there are little bits and pieces where they put those things in where it's it just creates this sense of connection that you realize it's important even if you don't if you didn't know what it's actually connecting to um which is i think that's the perfect thing you get that it's important you get it's especially like that crystal Mm -hmm. uh it, it has meaning and value and all those things if you're a fan and you know where that comes from, it means even more. But it's it's not ruining it for somebody who, you know, this may be one of their first Star Wars things. Which would be stunning to me because that, it, look, I, I know we have sort of a thing where like we want to discuss things in certain phrase, but but I feel like you broached the topic there. I immediately want to ask as soon as you say that. Is this something that you would use to introduce someone to Star Wars? Or is this something where you would wait until they had seen Star Wars already? Do you view this as a tool to turn them into a fan 
and make them curious? Or is this simply something that is part of the deep magic that uh, somebody will want to plug into? I think it depends on the person. You know, if if a person is really into things like, you know, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, that kind of stuff, you know, I think this might be an interesting thing to be able to show them uh, because, you know, it, you don't have to even know who Andor is um, in this show. Um, I think, you know, John, it reminds me a lot of Solo in that sense. You don't mm. have to have known who Han Solo is, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To enjoy Solo because I think it's just a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just a good show, even if you don't really know what Star Wars is. And I feel like the reason that's the case is because I think it does many of the same things that the A New Hope does. It draws you into its world and it helps explain all you need to know without necessarily having to, uh, of course, know anything else. And when it references something else, it does it in a way that's like, ooh, that's intriguing. But it's not like pivotal for you to know five other things to get what's happening in this series. So, um, I, I again, I, I think it would really just depend on the person and, and, and what they like. Uh, as to whether or not that might be the case, but I, I don't know. I, am I way off base? What do you guys think? No, I think that's right. I mean, because I think of, you know, like, for example, when we talked about WandaVision, I think one of the things I remember saying was that it felt like you had to know all of the other MCU stuff that had happened in order to really get what's going on with WandaVision. Whereas here, you could use this as a jumping off point and not be missing a ton of things where you don't understand what the show is about. Yes, I I agree. I think I'm, I think the baseline is somebody has to be a sci-fi fan in some sense, though. Because, yeah, it's uh, you know, probably a good call. Which is yeah. not... I'm not saying that as a pejorative, but like if I tried to look, I, I know anybody that has heard me babble on for, for years, it feels like I'm throwing my wife under the bus constantly. But in all honesty, I probably couldn't show this to my wife, but I couldn't show Rogue One to her either because it's like she doesn't really plug into it. Like she's the surface level Star Wars or sci-fi fan. And it's like, okay, that's fine. So somebody has to baseline be a sci-fi fan. I think you could take somebody who has a, a sci-fi interest and use this as a, a means to turn to say to them, but see, Star Wars has something to offer you. Like say they're, yeah. they're a diehard Star Trek fan or they're a diehard, what are the, you know, I don't know. I was thinking of, honestly, Westworld, right? You know, if you're that kind mm. of fan of that type of prestige television show, uh, this is the same type of show, honestly. And you could appeal to somebody like me where you'd say, hey, it's prestige like Westworld, but substantially less nudity and substantially <laughs> less cursing. I'd be like, yes. go well, on, and, please and tell me more. Actually understandable plot wise. <laughs> also true. There you go. There you go. Wait. Oh, my so gosh. The secret was in Andor's hat all along? What? <laughs> <laughs> the the oh, Death Star man. plans no, were in they, Andor's underwear. Yeah, there you they, go. No, they should just <laughs> never have, you know, gone into the, uh, the the vault or whatever it was on the island. You know, they should just never have gone into the... So, um, Okay. So, uh, we went on a detour that I didn't necessarily think we were going to, but I, I think it was really important because... Again, 
I think one of the, the the main pluses for this show has been what we talked about for so long, which is the way that this show looks and um, the fact that we honestly had nothing but glowing praise for that is a is a huge thing. But, you know, this share, show, like I said um, there, it is a 12-part interlocking series of different arcs, and we follow these different characters through. And, of course, our main character is Cassian Andor. And we learn a lot about this character, and this entire season is about taking him from being somebody who's just kind of a mess at the beginning, this kind of con man, this this guy that's just kind of getting by, to becoming somebody who will join the rebellion, is is basically willing to make a blood oath at the end, which is shoot me or take me in. And that's the arc of 12 episodes, which this, if people don't know, I'm sure most people do listening to this show, this covers an entire year of his life. We're five years before Rogue One. This season covers one year. The next season will cover the next four uh, in arcs. And so what did you guys think of that? Because in all honesty, if that story doesn't work, I I don't think that we could really have a show that works called Andor. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think that also if Diego Luna, like I said, didn't work, in the beginning as Andor um, playing that character, then it wouldn't have worked. So for sure, that's a plus, but then also having a good origin because obviously people are curious. We didn't get much of a definition in Rogue One about where he came from and what his reason was for joining the rebellion. I do remember part of my curiosity about learning his story here was from a line in Rogue One where he says, I don't remember the exact line, Matt, you can probably correct me, but talking about that he had killed someone before. That yeah, he had well, a dark past. He says, yeah, I've been in this fight since I was six years old. Yeah, there you go. You're like, six <laughs> years old, that's okay. That's intense. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I would say, um, back to our um, aggressive negotiations, John, um, is I actually wish there had been some kind of subtitles with all of the language from his original home planet, because there was a lot of it for never getting an explanation of what they were saying. This is where I become a stinker, okay? Because I have my own problems with that first three-episode arc that Matt uh, has threatened to uh, burn my house down about. I'm I'm just letting you guys know if my house burns down, it's Matt's fault. Okay. Uh, Okay. Setting that aside, I actually am the type of person who digs that because that's a declaration from a filmmaker that they're vowing to me that if I turned the sound off, I should be able to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that, at its core, gets to Lucas's abstract filmmaking style, which is he was a firm believer. Merch was a, is a firm believer in this as well. That film as a visual medium means that that uh, you should be able to convey everything simply with the pictures on screen. Mm-hmm. Did I understand what they were doing and what was going on without understanding their language? If so, cool. If not, failure. 
sort of thing. So I think it, it, it was almost like a challenge. My issue, so long as we're talking about that in specific, is that I really think Andor as a series would have benefited from, from streamlining those first three episodes into one 80-minute premiere. I agree with that. And that is the core issue. Is that and that has been my core issue with the show since the beginning. Is that that's the point where it diverges with Lucas's whole thing. Now, in terms of telling Andor's origin story, because we're talking about Andor's arc, it would have also benefited Andor's arc because it would have gotten me to the damage and how it all was interwoven with who I was seeing in the quote-unquote present much faster. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where I totally get what you're saying, and I don't discount it. I don't think it's as much of a critical flaw as the fact that those first three episodes should have been one slightly longer episode which would have taken us from 12 episodes down to nine, which, you know, that I don't know if that becomes a matter of taste or not. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I will say for me, it did feel like there were parts with the dialogue that the pictures alone didn't do it for me. Fair. So yeah, Um, absolutely fair. I did feel the same. And I think you said it a little bit better that, um, the first two episodes felt like they were dragging a little bit um, and that it would have fit better if the first three had been combined. So, and and I think there's an implicit admission from, from them, from Disney, from whomever made the decision to release all three at first because they knew people would shotgun them and, and mm-hmm. watch them as one segment. If I had had to wait a week between each episode, I would have been a little bit crankier than I watched all three in a day and a half sort of thing. So, be that as it may. In terms of Andor's arc, though, Matt, to get back to what you're, you're guiding us toward, Andor's arc is very fully formed. And I like what happens with Andor's arc. I feel like I fully understand Andor in the context of this season. Like, if they did not make a season two, which, of course, they have to because of the way that the season ended. But I feel like I have a better understanding of him in Rogue One, and I actually would have more enjoyment watching him in Rogue One, which is the job of any prequel or sequel, is to enhance the enjoyment of what's been released before. So his arc in specific, absolutely, I think that that is a that is a win right there. So just quickly, I you know I, I'm I'm more on John's side, Chrissy. It didn't bother me with not having the Canari have you know subtitles there. Um, I think John, mm-hmm. you pulling out the whole idea of of Lucas's you know esoteric filmmaking desires really comes into to to focus for me there um because i felt like i understood enough of what was happening with them and got the gist of everything um and um you know i you know i know what both of you are saying about uh the whole idea of you know the first three episodes um 
but I was just re actually watching the series uh, before we started recording, and I was almost done with the third episode. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is that how those first three episodes do such a great job of just kind of setting you in the world of Andor himself and Ferrix specifically, and then, of course, giving you his backstory so that we really kind of set up who this character is and where he's coming from. Um, But at the same time, allowing there to be three episodes there, I think is very helpful in setting up not just his relationship with with um you know Ferrix, but his relationship with Marva, his relationship with Bix, um, as well uh as his relationship with Brasso, which are gonna be so important moving forward. And if you didn't spend those three episodes doing that and and again, just allowing that time to be taken, you know, um I I think you are missing something later on that you're not going to get um, if you don't do that. That's just where I come down. I, and, and all I'm saying is that those first three episodes act as a film of sorts. Sure, sure. I, I can see what you're saying, yeah. And, you I, and I'm just saying I, yeah, trim yeah. 10 minutes out of it, put it as one piece. I, think, mm-hmm. I just think it works better in, yeah. that, in that context. And I think Christy has a completely valid point about there are certain points where the visual language doesn't click. The gears don't mesh quite as well as they should uh, with, with, uh, with them speaking the, the alien language. Mm-hmm. It's not something that divests me from it, but there are certain moments where I sure. sit there and I say, wait, okay, am I sure what's going – and Eventually, I get to the point where, like, oh, oh, okay, okay, I know what's going on, but it can be disorienting for an audience to sit in there. And it would speak to, you know, again, I would have to think, like, in terms of somebody who's not as comfortable with that mindset, would it cause them to disconnect if I were to show this to them one episode at a time and they mm-hmm. can't understand what's going on? you know, verbally in a quarter of the episode, I'm asking a lot here. A thing that I was really struck by too with Andor um, really comes in those first couple episodes and then in the last episode with Marva being his adopted mother and, you know, the fact that she's willing to put her life in danger to save him, realizing that most likely Everyone here is going to end up dead because they have attacked, you know, these Republic officers at this this point in time. And at the end, when, you know, Brasso tells him, you know, what Marva had told him, he's like, tell him he know he knows everything he needs to know, feels everything he needs to feel, and when the day comes, those two pull together, he will be an unstoppable force for good. Tell him. I love him more than anything he could ever do wrong. And I was struck by just how beautiful this was in the sense of when when you know somebody loves you that unconditionally, how much that changes you. And John, it reminded me of the beauty of, you know, we talk a lot about fathers in Star Wars, but 
mothers are important in Star Wars too. And I was just really struck by the way in which, you know, this show is a lot about motherhood uh, from Marva to Mon Mothma to Cyril's mother. Um, But it also connects with the importance of, you know, somebody like who Padme was, you know, um, uh, when it comes to her own children. Um, I know she doesn't know them or anything, but I'm just saying like this, just the the type of person that she was. Um, And it just, I loved that speech and it just, it kind of brought tears to my eyes because again, I think it's one of those things that helps move this character from one place to the next when he realizes his mother's known all along who he is, but he's had to make his way there and, and figure it out by himself. And she's poked and prodded where she can, but she's done it in a way that allows him to make the mistakes and figure it out for himself as juxtaposed to somebody like Cyril's mother, who is just awful. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, that to me was just really something that I loved about this show. And, and then of course, having Fiona Shaw play Marva as his mother, you know, was I think integral because she just brings an intense gravitas towards that role, which really helps with that connection because she doesn't have a ton of screen time either. So I thought that was all great. I agree with, with the major point that showing the role of motherhood is deftly done without drawing attention to itself because the role of fatherhood is drawn without drawing too much attention to itself in Lucas's six Star Wars films. So having something that acts as a, uh, a, a balance to that, to show the role of motherhood, is absolutely wonderful and interesting and appropriate. I think that specifically in terms of, um, you know, with Cassie, and I think this is where one of the, the structural things that becomes a challenge is that there are so many plot lines going that sometimes when we come back in to, uh, you know, Fiona Shaw, um, I'm not as deft with the names as, you know, as everybody else would be. But, you know, coming back in with Cassian's mom, I get back up to speed pretty quick, but I spend too much time away from her at points to feel her influence on him. And when I come back to it, like at the funeral scene, okay, I got it. I'm I'm there. It's just a question of how long it took me to get there creates not an intellectual but an emotional distance from the moment so that when she gives that speech you know, by hologram during the funeral scene. I understand what you're saying, but for me, it doesn't create the same sort of emotional verve that I would have expected. Will that ameliorate itself on future viewings? Because I know I'm going to rewatch this season again, right? Just to just to double check my thinking on everything. It could, but you know there there is a thing where i think sometimes the show has a difficulty balancing that intellectual and emotional thing and i know that there are people who would levy that same criticism toward lucas's work but from my perspective he always hit the emotional notes necessary 
for everything. And it just made me work a little too hard sometimes for the intellectual parts of it. Whereas I think this is sort of a, you know, an inverse of that, specifically with that relationship. I kind of felt the same thing. And I'm wondering if we did because of the same reason, John, but um, it felt like almost there was a cut done edit wise between when we see Cassian with Marva for the first time, both as adults and then come back to them again as adults, because it, it does. I do feel that motherly connection, Matt, with, for sure, the scenes where she finds him originally as a child and then um, see him waking up in their ship and then um, at the end. But it does feel like there's kind of a disconnect in there somewhere where maybe they could have had a better scene of just the two of them before things get bad, um, having a more affectionate, close relationship than they do in the few scenes she has. I mean, I see what you're saying, but you're also asking for the first three episodes to be longer. And you guys just complained about the first three episodes <laughs> being too long. Are we? So it's like... Not being yeah, too exactly long. Yes. I'm, that's exactly what you're complaining uh, about. I, I don't know that we're asking for that. My complaint is drawing out unnecessary things and cutting out important things. Yeah, see, I don't think there's any... That's we're, I think you both are just completely <laughs> wrong. Like well, there, there's nothing wrong. unnecessary yeah, no. in this in this show. And the more I think about it, the more I think it, how it interconnects so well. And I mean, I don't, I don't know, John. I, I maybe I'm just a softy, but that speech that she gives at the end, I was in literal tears because I found it so moving. What was happening? Because, again, what's happening for not just Andor, but, like, it is a microcosm of what's happening across the galaxy. And this is just a small peek at the spark of the rebellion. And and, and, and the speech is so freaking well-written and so well-delivered and the production value of everything that's happening with the Empire and with, like, all of that stuff, you know, like, I mean, I just, I find it to be one of the best scenes that Star Wars has ever created and probably the best speech I've ever heard in Star Wars, maybe other than Luthien's speech, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, like, yeah, I mean, it, it's... I. Look, because it is it is representational of, you know, even even just what she says, you know, we have been asleep and it is what she's saying is that the galaxy has been asleep and while we slept, the there's been a darkness growing and we've got to wake up. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> to to to, you know, quote, rage against the machine wake up like it's you know it's time to wake up and so i just um i really i i really appreciate that like like again everything like everyone in the empire has been asleep and now they're waking up to the darkness of the imperial prison and that's where this show is just i feel like so tightly well written because all of these different pieces have been working together 
so absolutely perfectly to create that moment. Uh, uh, okay, look, I agree it's a, a terrifically written speech. Emotionally, what point does it hit me at? I like you. you, you I don't want to get into like a uh, oh well this worked better this worked harder, but like in Rebels, Mon Mothma's speech, right? That caused that that sort of emotional groundswell in me, right? And I know we're building toward that, and this is a piece toward that. I take nothing away from the speech or the way it was performed at all. Please don't take. Don't take it as such. It is simply a... Um, I, I think that it is, it, it is a, a... A feature, not a bug of the show, that there are certain points where it just takes enough time to get there that my fire has, you know, gone down a little bit. Now... To, to speak to, you know, like an, another point that you were talking about where it's, you know, one of the most finely crafted speeches in Star Wars. Again, I take nothing away from the writing and I take nothing away from the arc, but it is, I think, a, a fair and just criticism of the show, uh, a, a constructive one to say, let's just get there a little bit faster and let's have a little bit more. What, what do you mean? Get there faster? Like the, the, the like. What do you want to? Ha like I don't understand. Like this is the pinnacle of the season. This is the freaking finale. Like would you want this speech to come earlier in the series? Like no, what is it you're actually that's asking? That's not for? what. That's not what I'm saying. To, to no, I I know that's why I'm asking to speak to the earlier point. Like in in eighty eighty five minute first episode gets us there faster, quote unquote, right. Gets us to that point, um, so that that fire, that verve, exists when I get there. I, I and this is the difficult thing is right. I, I readily acknowledge I'm dead inside. If the three of us, you know, <laughs> the fire, I'm just absolutely hollow inside. If you were to open me up, there's nothing in there. It's it's quite scary. It's it maybe there's one of those aliens from conspiracy in in season one of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I don't know, but um, I think that th there are so many great things that work so well in this show. So incredibly well in this show. It, it literally just becomes a function of, I almost look at this first season of the show as something that um, just could have been, at, like, obviously you have experienced it at a level higher than I did, right? And I think that part of that function is maybe I'm just impatient. Maybe it's a failing on my part. Who knows? But I know I'm not alone to say that that speech she gives at the end, I wanted to stand up and pump my fist in the air and say, yeah, storm the gates. Whereas I was a little bit more... Um, Okay, I knew this was coming with it, if that makes any any sort of sense. No, that makes sense. I mean, it, at least to me. 
I I do feel that it had a little more impact on me than it did on you, John. Um, I don't, I didn't feel like it blew me away, but I definitely felt that for me, it was unexpected, um, and very good. And it, and definitely when I was talking earlier about not necessarily feeling the emotional connection between Marva and Cassian, I meant purely for that line that she says about Cassian. I wasn't meaning this speech. So I just want to be clear on that, too. I thought that the speech was really good. Um, I don't necessarily think it was the best speech I've ever heard in Star Wars, but I still think it's up there. Um, And I think that you kind of needed that moment because they are showing all along the way how the people of Ferrix have come together against the Empire over and over again, and how they have their own way of organizing where they're, you know, banging on the metal signs outside of each other's doors. And they have the guy at the anvil, the, uh, what is it called? The time grappler? Yeah, I think something like that. The timekeeper, time grappler. Yeah, yeah that was cool. Um, so I, I think that there's some things like that that all come together with the culmination being that speech. So I just want to also give it some credit there as well, that I think that you, you needed that as the final climax of bringing all of that together. I mean, I, I, John, you're not the only person. I've seen lots of people actually say that the show is boring. No, you know? I, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say boring. Don't you dare put that word in my mouth. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I, what I'm saying is, is that I have seen people because you were talking about the the impatience, you know, and 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 but I mean, I I've, mm-hmm. I I I've seen the criticism on on you know Twitter and and places of fans just being like this show is boring and you know it's no going anywhere and all this you know, so you know you're not the only one necessarily to, to I think feel like an impatience with the show like I, that's I'm I'm all I'm saying is that there are other people that I think feel on your side more so than my side where, you know, I, this is a show to which I, and, and I will, I'll give it credit in the sense of like the Mandalorian. I didn't care how long the episodes were. I just, I was enjoying spending time in the universe that they were creating. And, um, and I, I felt like, them spending, you know, because all the episodes, they're not the same length, um, you know, so they were definitely very keen, I feel like, that they were crafting each episode specific to the, what they wanted to be on screen and that there was a reason for that. And uh, just personally, to me, it was more perfectly crafted and worked the way I think they wanted it to work for people more so than it did for you. So, you know, and us going back and forth like i'm not discounting that anyone could feel that way or any anything it just like you said i it definitely worked much better for me than it even did for either of you now so. now the thing is though to contextualize because we're talking about you know character arcs you know and stuff like that luthan or uh what was denise goff's character um the the, the she was the uh, the female isb oh, agent what's uh, her name deidre yeah Deidre. They could have had whole episodes where it was just them. And I would have been there and I'd be like, I'm here for it. Oh, this is a 95 minute episode. Okay, sure. And it's just them going around. Okay, cool. I question sometimes whether the the 
impatience I felt with certain episodes was based on the charisma, the charismatic energy of the focus of that episode. Because I can tell you right now that Stellan Skarsgård is one of my favorite actors working. The guy oh, is yeah. magnetic. And I think that there's even a very interesting using Stellan Skarsgård. I feel like there's a Mads Mikkelsen quality to him. And I know that seems yes. funny, but it's like Mads Mikkelsen could be sitting there staring at me drinking tea for two hours. And I'm going to watch that movie terrified to turn it off because I'm like, he's going to do something. I know something's coming. It's you coming. Put, <laughs> you put Stellan Skarsgård on screen. I'm like, all right, something interesting is about to happen here. Like, I, I know mm -hmm. what's going on. And Denise Goff, I don't know what else I've ever seen her in. If anything, she is a revelation to me. Like, I, I'm, I'm gaga for her. I think that she is abs like, if I see her name in a future project of any sort, I'm going to be like, I'm going to watch that because she's, she's got some sort of like magnetic energy about her that, that comes out. So I almost wonder, let me put this forward. I think that Diego Luna is wonderful. I love him. I mm -hmm. like, I, I love spending time with him. I love spending time with, with Skarsgård. I love spending time with O'Reilly. I love spending time with Goff. I'm personally puzzled as to why I feel like that sort of thing is there for me, that sort of sense of impatience, because there are so many actors and actresses here where I'm like, I love watching every scene that they're in. Why is it that I feel that there is a, there's an impertinence in me where I'm like, okay, let's, let's get there. Let's get there sort of thing. I, I mean, Christy, like, is it just a personal failing? Am I just asking too much of the show? Uh, no. Personally, I would say part of my opinion on that was that it was um, Kyle Soller, and uh, he, he was the one that played Cyril, and right. the actress that played his mother. Because I will say those were the only scenes where I really felt they didn't fit with the tone and the... Um, interest that I get from the rest of the series. Um, and I, I didn't feel like we're really star Wars. There were some weird choices I felt like made with the scenes where he moves back home that, um, felt much more like a family drama than star Wars. Um, just the way that they speak to each other and sitting there and filmed the, you know, the way that that those scenes were shot. Um, even down to, I know they were trying to reference Star Wars showing blue milk, but it was like he was eating Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> like it was just like, it felt so like it didn't fit to me with the rest of the vibe of the show and even with the vibe of Star Wars overall. Um, so for me, those scenes felt like they could have been cut or much shorter to make room for the rest of the stuff. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think uh, Christy talked about Cyril. Um, you know, I I think I think if there's any weakness in the show to me, it's probably that that character and that storyline. And yet, I also found it fascinating because I think it it helped key us into that there are people who are 
basically fanatics for what the Empire is selling and just want to be a part of it so that they can feel important, you know? And that, I, I think to me, that's actually more terrifying than a, like a character or even like Deirdre, you know, where, um, because... Again, I think I think what Gilroy really tapped into was the way in which the Empire would have been able to utilize those people that are legitimately just kind of fanatical. Uh, and um, I think it, it, it you know, I, so obviously Star Wars is based off of things in history, but it really brings to mind like the the fanatical Nazis uh, that like the that were grown up since Hitler Youth, right? To mm-hmm. really like buy into what they're selling, and that's who Cyril feels like. And then and then you put on top of that this kind of dysfunctional and abusive relationship that he has with his mother. It's like. He wants nothing more than to be able to prove that he has worth and value, not only to her, but just to anybody. And, you know, so like it just creates this really toxic mix of grossness. And so I definitely understand like even just the uncomfortableness of the whole storyline with him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost meant to do that. And I'm really interested actually to see how that gets built upon in season two because. Yeah, it, his storyline, I think, is just is probably the strangest and weirdest of them all. I do f- like the other parts of his story. I definitely see some traces of um, even um, Grand Admiral Thrawn in that of like the obsession, you know, that it started with one little slight and then it became a personal vendetta. And he just had to continue to know what was going on with the Cassian situation and be an active part of it. Um but it was just those couple of scenes that bothered me. But otherwise, sure. I, I do yeah. like the character. Yeah, I I, th- I think that what you're you're absolutely calling out, uh, Christy, which is the we we reference Lucas positively with the way that the series goes at certain points. But Lucas was also about a ruthless efficiency with the story, where one scene with the mother would have been enough, as opposed to more than one scene. Mm-hmm. I. I and Matt, I also understand where you're coming from. What I want to get to, because we're talking about Cyril and Deidre, is that moment in the last episode of the season where there is this insane, as I interpret it, it sexual tension between the two of them after he saves her mm-hmm. is one of the most charged scenes I've ever seen in a show. Now, I haven't seen everything out there, so I'm sure, et cetera, et cetera. But that scene where they are face-to-face, and it feels like in any other show, they're about to um, do other things with each other. Like, that's an incredible moment. And I think that, again, speaks to the casting here is terrific. I just think that the what what's difficult is that I think that I have absolutely zero pacing issues with this show. Not absolutely zero, but far fewer pacing issues with this show if those first three episodes 
get brought together and like it's bizarre i've never had this sort of experience with a show before like book of boba fett i originally thought well you know if we did this if we did that if we re-edited this this show in specific i'm still so fixated on that first three episode arc like as just it, it's like the original sin of the series that just carries through of everything yeah. Uh, I did want to add, Matt, something I thought of when you mentioned, though, about um, his relationship with his mom and stuff. He's Gru. He's like, I'm going to the moon and you're going to be very, very proud. <laughs> I love Despicable Me and the Minions. I love that you brought that up. That is fantastic, <laughs> you. Christy. Oh you gosh. have made my night. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I want to go back. You know, John, you talked about uh, Luthen and um, you know I think it's really interesting to make this character this rebel alliance linchpin this being the character who begins to start to bring all of these disparate you know rebel groups together in any kind of coherence and has obviously been spending years of his life building towards this you know, we see that with him, with the ISB agent that they've planted, that they've been working years to get to that position. Uh, you know, um, the fact that he has obviously uh, found a way to, with his his assistant, uh, Clea, um, in, in his uh, shop to begin to connect different people, you know, like with Vel and, and all of that stuff, connecting with Saw, Mon Mothma. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, Stellan Starsguard, I think, is the exact person to do this because, you know, it's that moment when he changes mm -hmm. where... I mean, you were talking about the casting. It's just a revelation, right? Where this character goes from one person to a completely different person in the matter of 30 seconds. And I think that's to me, and I mentioned, you know, Marva's speech, but to me, he gives the other best speech in Star Wars when he talks about what this is costing him. Because it also gets to the point of what Rogue One was about, about... There are, and, and Cassian's character as well. We're going to be making sacrifices, and some of those sacrifices are going to have us doing things that we wished we would never have to do. Uh, and we're praying that nobody else has to do, but we're taking that upon ourselves to free the galaxy. And so, what does he sacrifice? Everything. And only, I, I, I can. I can I can think of very few people who would have been able to pull off this role in the way that he does. And I just, he's turned into one of the most interesting, complex characters in all of Star Wars within a few episodes. And so I give it my, I mean, my hat's off to Stellan Skarsgård because it's just so great. And if I could add on to that, one of the reasons that I especially enjoyed the character with him is he brings something different than we've ever seen with someone who's technically part of the rebellion. And that's someone who really rides the line between good and evil more than anyone else that considers them a part of the good guys. Absolutely. 
And I think the key to his character working so well is, uh, for those of us who are familiar with the lore, finding out, but for somebody who might be first coming to the lore through this, um, you know, experiencing, seeing him as one of those people who is the reason that Saw Guerrera's paranoia is... Uh, made worse that scene is that is the masterwork of actors who know their craft extremely well and know how to convey everything with facial expression and intonation in a way that is impossible to describe because that scene where Skarsgård is engaging Whitaker and you see Whitaker realize, oh, oh, we lie to each other to make the, oh, we're willing to let people die because, and in that moment, he's on board with everything. Oh, this makes sense, Luthen. That's great, Luthen. And you can see how that becomes by the time we get to Rogue One. You're lying. Everybody's lying. More lies. With deception. No, everybody's Everybody's screwing me here. I don't trust anyone. And he's regarded by the rebellion as the nutso. And it's like, you no, know, you find out it's because it's just because Luthen has just messed around so much that it's damaged him beyond compare. He was already on a bad journey. Luthen makes it worse. And it it is a testament to Skarsgård playing that scene so well and Whitaker playing so well against him mm-hmm. up to and including where Skarsgård is like, yeah, two tubes. He's the one that's been telling me. And like, he uses that to throw him off and he's like, yeah, was I telling the truth? No, I wasn't telling the truth or was I, you know, like it's such a masterwork in acting and so much of this. And that's the thing is like, there are things where I'm sitting here and I'm criticizing certain aspects of the show, but the acting that is the work of these directors getting these magnificent, it's terrific casting and it's great writing, but the directors getting these performances from these people is just next level, you know, because I want to make sure we mention Anton Lesser as uh, you know, as the ISP major, he has Tarkin vibes, but he also has, yeah, mm-hmm. He has those vibes of any of us who have been in meetings where you pick that guy out and you're like, that's the guy whose ass I have to kiss to get further here or to make sure that my position at least is secure, cool. I know I know who I have to talk to now to get things done. He's yeah. phenomenal as a, a pseudo Tarkin in this role. Um, mm-hmm. well, know. and the fact that he's under Ularin is great too. Oh, so magnificent. Uh, just what a, great, yeah. great connections. Wonderful, so. wonderful. And the back and forth with them and Deidre. I just wanted to yeah. give a shout out to that because I did love that scene where she finally gets her justification oh, for yes. looking across sectors that are not hers. I was like, yeah, you tell him, Deidre. Oh, yeah. and, and, and well, let's yeah. I, let's talk about Deidre real quick, oh. okay. you know, because you're already there, Christy, and <laughs> and I, I 
what I think is great about her is uh, the way her story interacts with all the other stories, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I also kind of love the way we we see how the empire was using the corporate sector as a, as a shield for their actions, like the Senate. And then they shut it down finally because it's not worth their time anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But watching her move up the ranks, I, I think the, the craziest part about the show is that you're almost rooting for her. And then you realize rooting for her is so wrong because she's she's on to everybody that we care about on the other side. And I think it's just really fascinating that it's a complex enough character that you have those mixed feelings of, oh, I kind of want to see her succeed. But then you realize her succeeding is screwing around with everybody else that you care about. So it's just... and. Yeah, I think, John, you're absolutely right. Her performance, Denise Goff, is is so good. I mean, uh, and 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 I think what's, what's great about it is she's so measured. Mm-hmm. Almost every single scene, she is in control of her crap, except for that very last scene we talked about with Cyril, and she is just... Because why? She's actually never been on the front lines. She's never actually been in battle. Mm-hmm. She's always just been in an office giving people orders. And she's finally gotten her hands dirty and she's gotten her bell rung and it's 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 worked her over. And, and I can't wait to see where she goes. Like, uh, you know, as a broken record, perfect casting and what an incredible arc just for her alone. Yes. Nothing I can really add to that. I mean, like I said earlier, she's a revelation. I, 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 I'm so blown away with how well she plays this role. I believe that she is this person. And this is one of those things where if I ever see her in another role, it's going to mess with my head. Because, like, let's say she plays a role where she's like a nice, dainty 18th century sort of like, uh, you know, stiff neck collar sort of thing where I'm going to be like, no, 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 no. She's in a Jane Austen movie. Yeah, she's in a Jane Austen (laughs) movie. And I'm like, no, 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 no. She's an ISB agent. Don't trust her. No matter what you do, do not turn your back on that woman. Like the kid that played Joffrey when I saw he was doing autographs at Dragon Con. (laughs) And I was like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, or or Ben Linus from uh, 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 Michael Emerson from Lost. Where it's like, I'll I'll never get closer than... Than, than like two, you know, two body lengths away from that guy. Cause I'm like, I don't trust you, man. No, no, not going to happen. Yeah. If I could just add a little bit about her. Um, absolutely, Matt, you're right. I was rooting for her. And then you see her in that scene with Bix and sicking mm. the doctor on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, oh, uh, what do I do now? But I will oh, say scary. We all know I'm part of the dark side, so I'm always rooting for them. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> uh, I love it. But yeah, she yeah, was uh, great. So uh, we've got a few more things to cover, and one of them has to be the fact that Mon Mothma, Genevieve O'Reilly, is back. And, mm-hmm. you know, she was so fantastic anyway. She's been playing, obviously, the character in animation as well as in, you know, getting the small part in episode three. I always wish they had continued and added the rest of that storyline in episode three. But her portrayal of a woman who is between a rock and a hard place, you know, um, 
is so good as the walls close in on her and the Empire is slowly starting to figure out what she's been doing and what it's going to take for her to be able to continue to do it. I mean, she throws her husband under the bus. Mm-hmm. Not that he's a good guy. Yeah, anyway. he had it coming. Yeah. Uh, but he also, I mean, but she's also links her daughter with Davos's son so that she will have the ability to move this money around. And I think what's so interesting is creating this moral ambiguity for this character so that, you know, I, John, I was thinking about the way in which when you see Mon Mothma at the end of Return, in Return of the Jedi, and I feel like it adds a whole other layer to that character to be able to understand why at that point she looks so and feels almost so broken. Like, it's been so long and she's given up so much. Like, if this is, doesn't end soon, she, it, it you know what I'm saying? It's like, this, I think, adds so much to the character. And, and O'Reilly is, I mean, outstanding. I, I agree with you. O'Reilly is outstanding. I also think that what's fascinating at this point is that Moth Mothma, I can tell you, as a kid, when I saw Return of the Jedi in 1983, she fascinated me. She's in it for, what, a scene? And you sit there, and I remember thinking, oh, she's so interesting. What's, what's, what's her story? What, what's going on with this? And this is the beauty of everything that's done here with O'Reilly. And what's been done before with Rebels and what's been done before with, with with Rogue One and even what Lucas was intending with Episode 3 when he, you know, when they selected her to be the younger Mon Mothma is that this is the surprise and delight aspect of a prequel of I never knew I wanted to know this much about Mon Mothma. I sort of knew, but I didn't know. And here I am, 30, 40, 40 years later, 40 years later, my God, I'm old, 40 years later, finding out all of this about Mon Mothma, and I'm invested in it, I care about it, and it feels like this belongs to that person I saw in a single scene in 1983, which is... That's a pretty monumental achievement when you think about it. This, this, mm -hmm. this, this is like the handoff of who do you really think of when you think of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Is it James Arnold Taylor? Mm -hmm. Is it Ewan McGregor? Is it Alec Guinness? Or do you accept all three as the same character? Mm -hmm. And I think O'Reilly, more, more even than Obi-Wan Kenobi... She owns this role. This is her role. This is Mon Mothma. She is Mon Mothma. To the point where I don't even question when I watch Return of the Jedi, I see the actress who played Mon Mothma, but I think of Genevieve O'Reilly because she's done the work of building that history. So mm -hmm. I think that's really, 
Sorry to go on a tangent there, but that's just Mm. where my head goes. So then what I have to say about it will make you laugh. Uh, This was crucial for me because until seeing her now, the way that they've told her story in depth here in Andor, I always found Mon Mothma boring. No. She was no Solo. She was no Luke. She was no Leia. And I was more interested in the larger than life characters that had a lot more to do. Um, She was always kind of there. I was, you know, a little bit interested in what she was about. But this is really what gave me something to care about with her. Um, I got that a little bit from Rebels, but really mostly from this. So I think that does speak to how well she did it here and how much they gave her to do in Andor. Um, go ahead. Oh, I would. I, I I don't mean to cut off ever. No, you're fine. But what I am gonna say here supports your your point here is I think that one of the tension points that you think of, that I think of, I should say, is you have a situation where we are in an age where you can replace an actor with Peter Cushing's face. You can do the deep fake. But Genevieve O'Reilly, now granted, again, Mon Mothma appears in a scene in Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. But... I see both and I accept. I see Ewan McGregor and I see Alec Guinness and I accept. And there's no digital trickery going on. Is it possible that Genevieve O'Reilly is showing to us that that digital trickery does not need to happen? That audiences don't care as much about it as the digital pioneers might think. The producers might think that we are willing to accept Alden Ehrenreich as Solo, rightfully so, because he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We don't need to deep fake young Harrison Ford in there. Audiences understand recasting. And Genevieve O'Reilly supports that point to the point where maybe Tarkin isn't, is an indulgence in Rogue One. As opposed to a necessity. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, I think it's two very different as well. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Ed, Tarkin is in a few scenes at most, you know, and, and here, you know, you have a main character. And mm-hmm. I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right, though, John. You know, part of this is you, you can do the work to cast somebody that can play the role and O'Reilly does fantastically you know and and I think not only that but they give her so much to work with here you know the 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 family struggle she has at home that's the Mm -hmm. struggle that she has as uh, you know everything is closing in on her uh, being worried about her cousin Val who is also a part of this rebellion and she has no idea exactly what Luthen has her doing in the first place Um, and the, the the fact that her daughter and this is one of the things that is, it's just this underlying current, but her daughter has buried herself in the traditions of Chandrilla as a way of coping with a life and chaos of her family. 
and yeah. she feels completely divorced from her daughter. She has no way to feel like she can truly reach out to her because she has too much else going on that in in the end is life and death for the entire galaxy. So, you know, it, it, everything they give her to work with here is just so great. And it's, you know, the beauty of, of the way she plays the character is that it's sometimes written all over her face and then she also does the same thing that Luthen does, right? Where she puts on a whole other mask and it's just, yep. It's an incredible performance. Yeah. That's exactly what I think as well. Uh, I just wanted to say, I feel like Genevieve O'Reilly does such a wonderful job of portraying a woman who is cool under pressure because she has to be most of the time. And to a point where you really feel sorry for her that is she ever really getting to be herself? Probably only when she's alone at night going to bed. Um, and the tortured feeling that you get when she's basically putting her daughter in an arranged marriage mm. in order to save the galaxy. Um, it reminds me of that quote that they have uh, um, Cinta say to Val which is, it's all about the cause. It's not about us. Right. And it really makes you feel for them that it's like, for people that are willing to live and die for the cause, they don't get their own life as an individual. It's always about what you're here to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and there's that connection even with when you think of the original trilogy, right? Like, mm-hmm. Leia's whole life is this. Her, she watches her planet get destroyed you know she loses everything like everybody loses everything in star wars so much Mm -hmm. and and yet they continue to go on why because in the end this show is so connected with and mon mothma is i think a perfect example of this of the life of and we talk about this all the time christy but this is the message of star wars it's between selfishness and selflessness mm-hmm. and there is this utter selflessness in so many of these characters and and of course that's the whole journey that andor's getting to right to go from being selfish to selfless and it's great two things about that though first one oh mon mothma is being selfless but she's being selfless with somebody else's life by putting her into an arranged marriage. So she's making a really terrible, terrible move that her daughter is not even clued in on as to what's happening and why. So there's, Although, there is that aspect I will to it. say that her daughter is also so connected with the traditions of Shandrilla at this point that I, I mean, uh, again, I, we don't know I hear, but who I Dallas reject his son. What, you know what, what I'm saying? What, what, <laughs> I, I reject what you're saying there. But uh, number two is what I think they do, getting back to the fi- the visual language of everything, is a beautiful thing is that I think they do a great job with costuming, framing, hairstyle mm-hmm. of yes. evoking Leia with Mon Mothma's daughter that it mm. makes sense why Mon Mothma and Leia would have a close relationship because mm-hmm. Mon Mothma yep. would see the daughter that she didn't screw over by marrying into a dirtbag's family. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Who would literally use their children as pawns. 
Hey, and, listen, and it's for the greater it, good. You know, yeah. it's, don't clue your kid in. Don't tell yeah, them you, why. You, know. you can't get something for nothing. Yeah, exactly. You, gotta, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Come on, Christy. <laughs> what I find fascinating about it, though, is what it, it like where that story could go, right? Like, um, because it could turn out terribly. But it it could also be something to which, you know, because Davos is somebody who's well connected in the black market and all these type of things, which, you know, the Empire was not above, you know, uh wanting to keep around. Um is there a way in which, you know, this ends up again, it could turn out very bad for her daughter, but it could also turn out very good for her daughter. We don't know, and I think that's what makes this like we're just left with the unease that Monothma has. It's like, I don't know if this is a good decision at all or a bad decision at all because the future is so unclear for everyone involved. But I also know that if I don't do this, then everything that I have been doing for the for the greater good will end. And so might the rebellion. And we're left with, I think, that cliffhanger with that storyline, which is... You know, it's kind of terrifying. Um, I think it adds to the real sense of of unease to which all of these characters will especially feel by the time you get to the Rogue One, you know. Um, And you get that speech from Cassian, you know, talking about all the terrible things he's done and and Mm -hmm. that they would have meant nothing if we can't do what we're here to do, which is, you know, try to get these plants and all that. So, you know, I think that's great. Um. Just uh, two more things I wanted to touch on. I know this is running long, but obviously this is a huge show and we've had a ton to say about it. And um, But, John, one of the things that we've always talked about uh, here on 602 Club, Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast, which everybody should be subscribed to and listening to, um, is the way in which the, the Clone Wars use genre to tell stories, mm-hmm. uh, and especially with those later seasons where they did arcs, and how they mimic that here in this show. So, you know, you end up with the episodes one through three is a police raid, and four through six is a bank heist. Seven's kind of an intermission, and then you get the prison break in eight through ten, and then the climax in eleven through twelve. And so I, I thought... That was really, really smart in the sense that the Clone Wars, and and I think even the Mandalorian picked this up in its art kind of storytelling as well. This is one of the best ways to do Star Wars television is is to craft a story around a genre people are familiar with and then turn it into Star Wars. Um, And I I thought uh, I really, I personally just... it, I think it's what made the show end up working for me. And it's one of the reasons like I started rewatching the show and I'm really interested to kind of like more binge it than, you know, have the time frame because I think it'll be really interesting to watch all of these things connect. I, you know, I, I, I see what you're saying. I think that the, if I were to, to hold a, you know, a, a, this versus that sort of thing, it's interesting because I think it comes down to taste because Andor is a full mythology entire season storytelling style, multiple arcs, 
huge overarching sort of thing going on. Whereas you have Mandalorian as an example of something where you can watch it bite size and it still has the overarching thing going on. But if I watch one episode, I'm okay. I don't, I don't feel like there's anything left at the end of that episode where I have to resolve it in the next. So I think that it's both a strength and a weakness of Andor that there's no standalone episode per se. There's no episode where I'm going to come in and I'm going to watch episode five because that's a good standalone episode. I might rewatch it because I really enjoy a performance or a particular aspect of something, but I'm not ever going to watch Andor as a as anything but a commitment to watch all twelve of them. And I think that's both a strength and a weakness of the series. And I think in that a little bit it more mimics those like Clone Wars arcs where it's like you're not really gonna watch just one of the Yoda arc, right? Like you kind of want to watch all of them after you start it just because of the way it connects where I think of like the Umbara arc or the Mortis arc or it's like mm-hmm. you know you you really are invested in that but I can also see what you're saying and I 100% agree in the sense that like yeah once you start this show you kind of want to complete it because it is this big overarching 12 part story that needs that resolution that you can't just I mean, you can, but you're going to feel a little incomplete only watching one piece of an arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a serial. That's the key difference between this and Clone Wars is Clone Wars is a serial. You know, another chapter is coming, but you can, you could even watch one and skip one and get to another and it's that Saturday morning serial feel, which is always what Lucas was recapturing with what he was doing, whether it was uh, Star Wars or Indiana Jones. Whereas with this, this is much more beholden to the, I got to watch it all. I, again, I did not watch all of Game of Thrones. I don't know if that is a feature of Game of Thrones. I know it is a feature of, for instance, Breaking Bad. I adore Breaking Bad. I think it is one of the most beautiful things that's ever been committed to film. I think it should be preserved. I think that it should be lauded. I think that every award in the universe should be thrown at that that show. But there's never really a time where I'm going to say, you know... I'm going to watch season four, episode three. Because I know to appreciate things in context, it's got to be the whole deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I I want to ask you something because uh, I I had this argument with uh, a a mutual friend that we have, Christy. uh, And um, they felt like the prison episodes weren't necessarily necessary. Like... Uh, that 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 you could have maybe like not had as many prison episodes, um, and I wanted to know how both of you felt like that before I I, I talk about. It. I'm just really interested because I was kind of surprised by that, but I I don't know if maybe other people felt like that. I 
I'm surprised to hear that, honestly, because for me, I felt like they were essential. I felt like they are really what shows Cassian seeing all that the Empire really is about. And especially in that moment where he tells um, Kino, when he tells Kino, there's only one way out. And you notice when they're talking about someone got released and then immediately put back in somewhere else. What's really going on? I, and so that's why I feel like those were so good. I see the reference exactly to THX 1138 with the um, subjugation of people, the uniforms, the separation by sex, um, and the fact that this is, they've realized, going to be a never-ending sentence. Um, mm -hmm. fits so well with what Andor is learning over time is the reason for the rebellion and the reason for what he does in Rogue One. It, never mind all of those other things that you said about THX that are correct, but the simple fact that you are impressed to create the means of your own subjugation it, mm -hmm. the, the machinery that is used to subjugate you. And I had a debate with somebody actually that I spoke with um, at work who also was watching Andor where he said, what are those things that they were putting together? And I postulated they were putting them together. Then they were sending those things to other sectors to take them apart. Oh, and so it was yeah. just a continual loop of just giving them something to do. That would make which, sense. Which is even more horrifying a concept yeah. than putting together something that is useful. Even if it's something that's eventually going to go over to the Death Star, that's at least going to have a purpose. If you're putting which together it does, something... Because if right. you saw the stinger... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you put something together that goes over to something... Well, you might have done something that sucks, but at least it had a reason. Whereas mm -hmm. you put something together and it has no purpose except to be taken apart and put back together again. Like that is that in my head canon, that's the worst possible outcome. That's uh, insanity. For, for everybody. You know? Yeah. yeah. But um, you know, I I'm sorry for go going off on that tangent, but fewer prison scenes that is the point where i think the show really hits its stride yeah. that is the point where the show is just firing on all cylinders i could not stop watching at that point because mm -hmm. that is the point where that 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 entropy that malaise that that absolute gut-wrenching what are we doing here sort of moment that happens and even seeing the guy throw himself and committing suicide by jumping on the tile and saying, I don't care how painful it is. I got to get mm -hmm. out of here and seeing what that does to Andy Serkis's character. And then even having that payoff of them rushing out to jump out and Andy Serkis stopping and saying, I can't swim. And you realize there are people who can never leave their prison. Like that is working on a symbolism 
that is just mm-hmm. next level with everything. That's where I think the show really excels. So in terms of the prison stuff, I wouldn't cut a minute of that stuff. That yeah. I'm there for that. I am on board for everything that has to do with the prison yeah. stuff. I, I mean, I, I think you guys are, are 100% right. I, I, I couldn't believe that that would be a criticism of the show, although um, it was. And, and But to me, what happens in the prison for Andor, obviously, you know, one, just story-wise, it's kind of cool. He meets Melshi, which is great, you know, which turns into a character we will see in Rogue One. So we know they stay connected, which is awesome. Um, you know, we don't know what happens to Kino Loy, Andy Serkis's character. Um, we don't see him die, so there's always the chance that he makes it, which would be great. Uh, you know, but I, I, I think more importantly, Christy, you rightly pointed out, this is the moment where, you know, Cassian has been running. He thinks he can basically get away from all of this somehow, and he realizes he can't. And I think he realizes the depth of the perversion and the this the destruction that the Empire is causing to the galaxy. And specifically, I think you both rightly called out that THX one one three eight of this dehumanization. You know, he's like, you know, we're cheaper and easier than droids. You know, we're yeah. a replaceable resource. It it doesn't matter. Um, and I think it's it's just I, I'm I'm with you, John. I, I think that's another place as well where I think the production design just is next level, uh, and that's where this show I think um, it just all the pieces are really working. Uh, and so, um, one last thing before we get to our ratings, we always have to talk about with Star Wars is music. And Nicholas Bertel does the music here. Uh, and it is very different than just about anything else we've gotten in Star Wars, uh, except for some of the stuff we've gotten in the last season of the Clone Wars and some things like that. So how does this work for both of you since, you know, music is such a key to the success of Star Wars? Ludwig Gorenson did different things with the Mandalorian. And I think that this here with Andor, we have different things, but it fits the character of the show and it works. Do I want something more John Williams with this? I think is the core question. And I can honestly say that the score for this show exposes possibly some of the shortcomings with Giacchino's approach to Rogue One. Because Giacchino's approach to Rogue One was definitely one of his scores, and I think that there are aspects of it that are wonderful. But I think that he is conscious of operating in the shadow of Williams. Whereas, I view this as a show that has its own signature, its own style, and owns it the way that Gorenson owns the Mandalorian. I would never have chosen, not chosen, but I would never have thought that the Mandalorian would go the way that it did with its music. 
but it did, and I love it. And it created something memorable. I don't think this is as successful as The Mandalorian. I don't think this is something where the work is as memorable as The Mandalorian. But I do think it is something that is very valuable and very good and suited to the show. So that's where I stand with the score. I would say it's similar for me. It's not as memorable as, say, Mandalorian score or um, other things even that Goranson did. Like, I immediately think now of Black Panther. Um, but I do really like it and like the unique style of it. I do think that it really brings more of the sci-fi feel to the show that I expect. Um and I like the way that they do the intro for the show and how that even has its own feel. Um, so I, I really like it and I think it fits. It's just not as memorable as I would want it to be. I like, I like that you call that out about the intro, Christy, because one of the interesting things is how the intro music fits the flavor of where the episode is going to go. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more discordant or harm harmonious depending and and like of course the very last episode where it's being played by the orchestra we're going to get in that final uh episode so that's really cool um uh, you know it's interesting because we've talked about uh, a lot the the thx 1138 illusions and in many ways you know uh, i think this feels a bit like that, but also has those Blade Runner 2049 vibes to it, which so much of this show has that type of feel, which is, you know, we're in a dystopia, right? Like, yep. this is the, the heart of the Empire when it's raining and when it's crushing um, people to the point where we're about to get to, you know, a new hope. Um, and And that feel is is leading that discordant nature even with the music i feel like is 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 leading to that spark of the rebellion that we're going to get and so i i think john you're and chris you're both absolutely right i don't think the music is is obviously quite as memorable as say the mandalorian which you know i think Goranson found in a completely new Star Wars musical language. Um, but I think that this fits perfectly with, with the show. Uh, and it, 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 it fits within every scene of the show. And that's what you want a soundtrack to do. Um, and it is, I, I, I enjoy even listening to it by itself. It's, it's been, been good. So, um, well, I know that this has been an incredibly long episode. This has been I probably the longest episode of this entire year, um, which is phenomenal. So thank you all for listening. But we come down to the place where we could continue talking for another two hours, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to ask for the ratings for Andor. So John, as the guest, what would you rate Andor season one? A solid four. This is a show worth a rewatch. This is a show that could grow. I think its ceiling overall is a four and a half. If I if, if my mood changes in some way, because I do think that there are certain things that work against it through the season. 
So I will give it a solid four, which is a good rating. I know like th- th- there there are certain aspects where oh four out of five oh no that's not perfect, but four out of five that's that's no slouch. It's a good show. I'm glad I watched it. I enjoyed it. I do enjoy it. I think it adds something to Star Wars as a whole, as a franchise. Uh, and I think that um, it's worth watching. So, four out of five for me. And knowing you as I do, that actually is a phenomenal rating. There you go. So, there you, go. Uh, you know, uh, that's awesome. I- I'm so glad. Christy, where are you? So... I'll start off by telling you initially my husband's rating was uh, that it was terrible and it was all about people talking quietly in dark rooms. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So I'm certainly not on that end of it, (laughs) which really surprised me, honestly. Um, Although I had a few things um, that I would change, um, I still felt like it's really got a lot to offer and that it's better in a lot of ways than even, you know, like we said, Book of Boba Fett or um, Kenobi. So I think that that's saying a lot about the good pieces of it and the scenes, especially in the prison, I felt like were so essential. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder if maybe it would have been better if they had not used Andy Circus as Snoke and then also used him here as a completely different character in the same genre. Um, but I feel like if you're going to use him for one or the other, that this was the role you needed him for. Because he's so good at bringing that gravitas mm-hmm. to the role and yeah. someone who becomes a character and then is realizing everything he thought he knew is false. Mm-hmm. Um and missed opportunity not bringing in K2SO. We had similar droids and didn't even go there. So I'm hoping that's in the next season. He will be in the next season. Okay. Uh, when they reworked this season, um, they moved him to the second season. But okay. he will be there. So, okay. Uh, we'll get that story. But I like um, that it was possibly like a, a teaser showing that it's coming. Um, mm-hmm. So ultimately, my rating is also a solid four out of five. Um Hot floors. Nice. Nice. Oh, hot floor, hot floor. Yep. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I, I'm glad that I you know, I I honestly didn't know where either of you were gonna come in. Uh you, John and I have bantered back and forth about certain things as we always do. Uh and but I didn't know where you guys would land, and so I'm so excited that you both are there. Um I think probably nobody's going to be surprised that I'm going to give this a five out of five. Uh, I I think that this is absolutely 100% the best live action Star Wars show that's ever been created. Um, I I think it has everything I ever wanted in a Star Wars show. Uh, and from production to uh, casting, everything. I'm not saying I don't love the Mandalorian. I 100% love the Mandalorian too. Um and and I think, you know, it's right there next to this show. Um but I do think that there are things that even the Mandalorian can learn at least production-wise uh from this show and I hope they will. 
because in in all honesty, that's that's what's going to take the Mandalorian to the next level is if they start producing uh, and uh, at this level. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, an incredibly phenomenal show. I cannot wait for season two. And I hope in all honesty that that every show that comes out now from Star Wars uh, live action takes this as a reference and and this is what we're working towards uh at least in look and feel um so i do want to say even though i think this show is a five every star wars show doesn't need to be andor Mm -hmm. i i think you know we talked john you and i we did a whole episode on the aggressive negotiations about genres right and about the different type of genre shows we might like to see um i think Andor does what it does well. I think The Mandalorian does what it does well. It Not everything needs to be this. Um, and so, again, the only thing I would take from this for every other show is just production value. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think The Mandalorian does what it does fantastically. So I'm not asking for, and I've seen that online where people are like, oh, every show needs to be this and make Tony Gilroyd the person over Star Wars. No, I don't think that needs to be the thing. I, that you know, so um, I, I just I feel like there need to be a lot of caveats because people take it in so many different ways. But yeah, this is a great show, uh, and uh, I can't wait for what we get next. So uh, before we get out of here, John, um, if people wanted to catch up with you, as I know they will, uh, where can they find you on those interwebs? Well, as I know they won't, I am Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J, whatever, spell it yourself. Who cares? And you can reach me through that Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. You can also go ahead and look for me on two shows over on the Nerd Party Network. One of them is called House Lights, which I do with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser, where we look at the work of directors. Although that's sort of a loose guideline. Um, it, it's sort of fun how we more approach like it. More like guidelines anyway. Yeah, more like guidelines <laughs> than a rule. And you can also find us, uh, well, find me, I should say, you and me, Matt, when I say us, over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast, which I think is a delightful show. Some people may disagree, but I think those people are wrong. And Chrissy, where can people find you? Well, you can find me, of course, at Bespin Bell on Twitter and Instagram. And then, of course, I do hang out sometimes in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And... um I, when I'm not here on 602, you know, I have a finished show called Sabres and Spells that I did with Amanda and Teresa on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And then I also have some stuff coming down the pipeline. Matt and I, like he said, are going to be doing some fun stuff for Patreon. So you'll definitely want to become a Patreon supporter so you can get that exclusive behind the scenes content. Woohoo! Uh, and of course, uh, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, outside the Six Hundred Two Club, of course, I'm doing the Orb, Warp Five, Literary Tracks, the Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And of course, when uh, I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations on the Nerd Party, I did Owl Post with Dre Kaufman, where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us. And there's a fresh one if you mouth off again. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm.